0: Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits
1: all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment— you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
0: Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. In this podcast, my guest tells me the five things from their life, four they love and one they loathe, that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. And then we chat about them. Chatting with me in this episode is the writer, director, actor and comedian, Katie Brand, who burst onto our screens with her own show, The Katie Brand Big Arse Show, in 2007. Katie's also been in Casualty, Peep Show, Rod Bryden's Annually Retentive, Head Cases, The film Nanny McPhee and the Big Bang with Emma Thompson. Let's Dance for Sports Relief, where she performed the dance routine to Beyonce's Single Ladies. Never Mind the Buzzcocks, which she hosted for Children in Need. Strictly Come Dancing in the 2012 Christmas special, where she danced with Anton Dubeck. The film Walking on Sunshine, Map and Lucia, Midsummer Murders, Am I the Only Actor Who's Never Been in That? And Paintball Massacre. We'll hear more about her writing later. So here is the delightful Katie Brand and her time capsule items. Hope you enjoy it. That's it. That's good. He says, pressing lots of buttons just to make sure everything's fine. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Okay, Katie, it's really lovely to have you on my time capsule. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So we're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. That's all there is to it, I'm afraid.
2: I see. Okay, and am I right that there's four nice things and then one thing that I'm not sure about that I would like to not see again? Is that correct?
0: That is correct. Yes.
2: I have understood the format correctly because I know you've done a lot of these, so yes. I just I don't want to mess with your format.
0: <laughs> well, maybe it needs messing with sometimes. I think. <laughs> No, no. Never mess with a working format. So should we see what you've got? Yes. What's your first item?
2: Well, my first item is the film Dirty Dancing. Now, this isn't just purely sort of cynical marketing because I, I have written a book about dirty dancing, so I'm just going to say that up front. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: that I wrote a book about dirty dancing a couple of years ago called I Carried a Watermelon, and <laughs> it was all about my obsession with the film and my love of the film and also what I think the film taught me as a teenage girl when I first watched it. The book sort of came about because it was my 40th birthday a couple of years ago and my husband said on my birthday itself, which was a sort of boring weekday, sort of like, oh, let's not get a babysitter, let's do something nice another weekend sort of birthday, even though it was my 40th. Um, And so he said, what do you want to do? So I said, oh, we'll we'll just get, let's have some nice food and a bottle of champagne and, and then I don't know. And then I suddenly had this notion out of nowhere that I suddenly thought, I want to watch Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and he went, OK. And he went with it. It was my 40th birthday. He wasn't going to argue. Uh, and so we found it, and we sat and watched it. And I thought, I haven't actually watched this film all the way through properly, sat down deliberately to watch it from start to finish since I was a teenager. Mm. And I was really obsessed with it as a teenager and completely obsessed with it from the first time I saw it, really, when I was about 11 on the TV. came out on the TV. And it just absolutely knocked me off my feet, this film, at that time. And... I sort of went to bed completely buzzing, just thinking, what have I just seen? My life will never be the same again, you know, in that sort of 11-year-old way. Yeah. Uh, And then after that, I didn't get to watch it again for a while, because that was the way of it, wasn't it, at that Mm. time? You know, you couldn't just download it from a streamer just because you say to your husband, let's watch this tonight. Um, So I had to wait till it came back round on TV again, and I was ready for it. I recorded it onto a VHS. I wrote... Dirty Dancing Do Not Wipe on it in (laughs) thick black letters on the label. And then I watched it every day for three months. Um, And uh, from start to finish, after school or at weekends. And then my dad confiscated the VHS and he... (laughs) (laughs) He hid it because I think he was a bit worried that this was getting a bit too obsessive or that, you know, I wasn't doing my homework and things. Anyway, I conducted a thorough search. I found it. Uh, I proceeded to continue to watch it every day after school without them knowing, and I would put it back in the hiding place. (laughs) And so it was a real consuming sort of obsession that I had with Dirty Dancing. And so when it came to my 40th birthday, it was like this weird moment where I suddenly thought... I want to sort of look back over my life through the prism of Dirty Dancing and see if it still stands up, see if I love it as much, see what's really in there. It's still a successful film, so there must be something going on with it. Mm. And it, as I sat and watched it, I just thought, oh my God, this is every bit as good as I remember it. And and it's doing the same thing to me as it did when I was a teenager, which made me feel kind of optimistic and excited about life and invincible and wanting to try new things and have an adventure. And I felt all those things again when I was 40. And I, again, went to bed sort of buzzing. So after that, I pitched it to my agent. uh, And I just said, I think there's a book in this. I think I'd like to analyze it as a film as a piece of culture and also sort of look at how it affected my life and my attitude to life. And, and so that book sold weirdly quickly given how usually, Most of my ideas sort of falter (laughs) and generate no interest or funding whatsoever. And then I realised there were loads of women out there who loved Dirty Dancing. And I thought, I bet there's a Dirty Dancing book already. So I looked that up and there wasn't. So, And then the response to the book was really huge. So I'm not just trying to sort of use your podcast as a giant advert for my book. What I think I'm trying to say is that... I rediscovered this thing that sort of can be a bit dismissed as frivolous and a bit silly and a bit trivial. Like a lot of things, actually, that girls like, sometimes that happens.
0: So were you concerned when you watched it when you were 40 that actually you'd see it and it would be, you know, if you wear a pretty dress, you get the boy sort of film?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I it wasn't massively concerning, it that side of it. It was more that... I thought, does this stand up as a piece of filmmaking? That's what actually I found quite interesting because it really does. And I think so much stuff that girls get into is dismissed as something that's a bit silly. Whereas boys' things are kind of big and important and about serious themes and good and evil and Star Wars and and all the (laughs) girls' films are just about dancing and sort of, you know, getting a nice boyfriend. So, Mm. whereas there can be quite big themes tucked into those sorts of films, as there are with any film. And I also think that if something endures for 30 years like that has, then there's something else going on. And I think that there's something that's worth looking at. And as I watched it, I, I paused it at 30 minutes, and I just looked at my husband, I went, the pace of this thing is unbelievable. It's so tight. They've just delivered every setup of the story, like, in this incredible... Way, which then it means you can have slower paced scenes later on. And I, I just think the whole package of the film is just a genuinely brilliant film. The script is great. The dancing is amazing. The chemistry is just once in a generation between Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. And it's got all these messages for teenagers not just girls about you know grabbing hold of your life and going out there and getting you know learning something new it's about first sexual experiences and how they can be built on trust and friendship and working together for a common goal and you know it's got things about class in it it's got things about father daughter relationships it's it's genuinely just packed full of this stuff and then on top of all that there's the whole issue of illegal termination of a pregnancy that that's like a whole thing people just forget that's even in there but <laughs> there's this huge kind of feminist storyline about the need for safe abortions and things like that so it's just actually quite an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. And I, I just had this feeling of like, this needs to be looked at again. This needs to be looked at properly. And I just had this avalanche of a response from people about it afterwards. Lots of women, obviously, but some men as well. But just women of my age, particularly, just saying, God, actually, now I think about it, that, that really did have a big impact on me. And obviously the dancing's incredible mm. and that helps.
0: And Patrick Swayze is gorgeous.
2: And Patrick Swayze is gorgeous and lovely. He's this kind of gentle sort of Texan cowboy come ballet dancer you know and that was all in him anyway as a man yeah you know everyone talked about this sort of incredible quality he had in that way he could be quite sincere and innocent and sort of sexual at the same time and you know
1: it,
2: they just put a package together and i think that's why well, i was writing the book i was having fun with sort of silly stories about my life and when all the times i've been an absolute dick sort of thing <laughs> but uh, in the book there's a lot of that there's a lot of source material for that but just analyzing the film and how you make a film that is more than a script it's more than a star it's more than anything and just sometimes even though they were all quite rookie filmmakers Just something comes together and it just works and it just is golden. And I think this film deserves a place, a proper place in sort of the cultural landscape.
0: I'm going to have to look at it again. (laughs) (laughs) Because in my brain, because it's such a long time since I've seen it, Mm. I was probably at the age where I disregarded it. Mm -hmm. I didn't really watch it. Because I thought exactly what you say, that I thought, oh, that's just about, you know, a girl learning to dance and being lifted in the air. Yeah. Seen, and also, in my mind, I think I get it confused with Footloose. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> well, there's a lot of dance films of around that era, you know, starting in the late 70s and moving up the whole of the next decade, and Grease and Saturday Night Fever, and I think thematically there's quite a lot of crossover. So, yeah, I mean, people do get them muddled up, but, I, yeah, I would look at it again. And if you if you still think, I mean, it is a great piece of entertainment. I'm not trying to pass mm. it off as some kind of of art house thing, but I think it's a really good film for 13-year-old for girls. I think it's a good film for everyone, but I mm. sort of feel like it should be compulsory viewing for 13-year-old girls. <laughs> Watch Dirty Dancing and you will learn a lot about all sorts of things, I think. Um, mm. And actually, after I wrote the book and it came out, the writer of Dirty Dancing got in touch with me and just said, I've heard you've written this book and that's really nice and thank you. And And so that was just an amazing kind of circle that I, I was sort of trembling as I read this email, <laughs> <I'm> thinking <laughs> of my 11-year-old self, thinking, God, could this ever have happened? Yeah. Um, and I went to Kellerman's. I went to the place where they filmed it and all of this. If anyone is really into Dirty dancing, they'll know what that means. But there's a whole chapter about going to Kellerman's and standing outside the room where Patrick Swayze stayed all this <laughs> stuff. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. The lake is there. You can go and stand where they did the lift in the water. All of this sort of terribly exciting stuff there absolute geeks so whenever I'm at the dentist and they say think of your happy place that's where I think of
0: now (laughs) (laughs) oh how brilliant how lovely it is when you have those strange connections with people from the past who who you never thought your life would come in conjunction with it's brilliant isn't it yeah I recently got a tweet from Michael McKean he was in Spinal Tap Mm-hmm. And I got a, a tweet from him saying that he liked a thing that I'd done years and years and years ago. Yeah. And he, he said, I don't know where I can get a copy of it. And I said, I've got one. Send me your address, I'll send it to you. And, <laughs> and I did.
2: That's so great, isn't it? I really pinched myself just on the odd occasion where, where that happens. Mm-hmm. I, you just think, just have a minute. Enjoy it for your life. For whatever kid you were, just enjoy it. Don't let it pass.
0: Mm-hmm. Think what your 13-year-old self would think of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, lovely. Well, I shall definitely watch Dirty Dancing again.
2: Yeah, going with an open mind, it's still an enjoyable film. And the dancing, oh, the dancing. That dance scene at the beginning in the staff party, I think, is one of the best scenes in cinema, one of the best dances, because They tell the whole story of the film, basically, in a 90-second dance. And the sweat coming off people and the way they've shot it and just the heat of it and the pheromones in there, I just think it's a great scene. I just think there's just bits (laughs) in it like that. You know, it's just great... (sighs) A piece of filmmaking
0: well I shall watch it with an open mind in fact I always have an open mind yes you do I've got basically an empty mind that's what I call <laughs> and it does occur to me that had that video been owned by a young boy rather than the young girl you would have written on it dirty dancing wipe daily yeah <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we shall move on to your (laughs) second item.
2: Usually it's me that lowers the tone. I'm glad you've gone there first.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll always drag it down. Don't worry. (laughs) So, Katie, what's your second item you'd like to put in the time capsule?
2: My second item is Acorn Antiques, Um, the Victoria Wood spoof sitcom. I mean, obviously, all of Victoria Wood is fantastic and a masterclass. But the thing about Acorn Antiques, particularly, I think, that means something to me is that it's the first thing I remember laughing at that I felt that I got an adult joke. And so I I think we just had it on on TV. We were watching it like everyone would sort of watch the one of three things available to watch on a Friday (laughs) night or whatever. (laughs) And it was all in the sketch show, wasn't it? And then suddenly Acorn Antiques would come on. And I just, I do sort of weirdly remember as a girl, I don't quite know how old I was, nine or 10 or 11. I don't know, but... But I, I found myself laughing at it and I suddenly realised that I understood what this joke was and that it was quite a clever joke because it was a spoof and that it was bad acting and that the camera angles were deliberately wrong and that was funny and that was a joke. Because, you know, he wrote it all out. There are some gags in there, as there always are with Victoria Wood, but a lot of it is in understanding what they're parodying. And so I just remember suddenly almost... Click, like having an epiphany and finding everything about it hilarious. And then every time we watched a Victoria Wood show, I just wanted it to be Acorn Antiques and I wanted it to come back. It's always been one of my favourites of hers. It's just so hilarious. And obviously, you know, I was a bit obsessed with TV and film, anyways. And I sort of had this idea that I wanted to work in those worlds in some capacity. So having jokes about making TV that I understood, Mm. like as a youngster, I just felt like earth's most sophisticated person <laughs> you know I just I felt like oh my sense of humor has come of age like it was it was just this weird odd moment that I always remember and um it's just so funny isn't it just I mean it's just properly properly yeah. funny and just every line is ridiculous I still think of that line of you know Celia Imrie on just at the start of one of the scenes saying something like in the phone it certainly sounds like a genuine Picasso, Martin, but I'd have to see it, to be sure. And then she just puts the phone... Fan- and it's not referenced again at all. Like, there's just no... no it, that's just the beginning. And then, then then, they come and they start the scene and it's just like, God, how brilliant that this woman... You know, uh. I think I've got a Picasso. Oh, well, it certainly... Can you describe it for me? Oh, yes, it certainly sounds like... Yeah, it's just... Pop it
0: round, I'll have a look.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Really
0: brilliant. And
2: I, but also just that whole thing of, oh, I, uh, suddenly I know who Picasso is and I know why that's funny and I know that you couldn't possibly just have a Picasso you were wondering about on the off chance (laughs) in your garage. I just felt so grown up. So I know that that's why it means something to me, but just objectively speaking, it's just absolutely... Hilarious, Yeah,
0: every performance is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, if you look at Julie Waters in that, it's a masterclass in how to be big (laughs) and really small.
2: Yeah. It's because it's really specific, and I think I always remember thinking about that, you know, when I've done performances and sketches and things like that, and at times I've got them really wrong and just gone over the top and, like, a bit all if in doubt shout and all of this, and it took me a while to learn... Just You can be a bit noisy and silly and a bit sort of over the top, but if you find really specific things to do in the performance, Mm. like just a way of pronouncing a word maybe or just something unexpected about the way you're holding yourself or a face or a very, very particular accent, not just something, I don't know, but then you can get away with quite a lot she definitely does that. They all do that. They all just find these little, funny, specific ways. Just something nice, little gritty, something unexpected in it that just... <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just perfect. And you think, oh, yeah, you just did that
0: right. I wouldn't have done that. And, of course, Victoria Wood actually plays the character that is in every soap. You wonder why they're in yeah. it. Because they're such bad actors. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> every soap has one of those.
2: What it often is and it was probably a slight sort of satire Victoria was making on herself as a performer as well, is that if you're the type of actor and I am this type of actor that is always hyper aware of the schedule and whether we're sticking to this and what the lighting's doing and is that line quite right and basically all a bit sort of bossy boots going on in the back of my head you're not actually fully concentrating on the acting whereas all the actors that I've worked with who are brilliant at the acting are totally oblivious to everything else like they're just really not thinking is that light right or is that there or what type of this and if we, if we don't get off this in the next 20 minutes we're going to be late for lunch. you know they're just <laughs> sort of slightly just it's not my department darling and then they just do that thing and weirdly it's like Victoria Wood is playing that part the part Mm. of Babs and the part of herself because she's always slightly glancing off camera (laughs) and like checking am I in the right place are they in the right place is that is she going to come
0: is this a two shot
2: yeah it's just really funny but I always like the bits where um, Mrs Overall is hovering waiting for her cue (laughs) that always (laughs) she doesn't even have to say anything but when she just creeps into the back of, the, of shots and then there were times where she would just back up a bit
0: again yeah. like look and sometimes all you just see is a tray yes. <laughs> genius <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, my waiting. God. just waiting
2: just waiting
0: do you think that character was first formed in the Two Soups sketch. Was that before?
2: I think it was before, the Two Soups sketch. I may be really wrong about that. Scholars of comedy may well correct this. But certainly the physicality of it is very, very... The walk, isn't it? That sort of shuffling elbows in... Unsteady shoulders mm. up.
0: I have never laughed so much at a sketch <laughs> as that two soup sketch.
2: I know. But again the brilliantness of the directing of playing it all long like that, which I love. And you just think, are they gonna do this again?
0: <laughs> like it's <She's laughs> gonna take this long again.
2: Again? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, God, it's glorious.
2: There's a fashion now, too, sometimes in comedy directing, to not play something long. There's a nervousness and you can feel it and they think, oh, we better cut in, We might. someone might turn over the channel. But it's just so lovely when you see that old confidence like that sometimes, yeah. of just letting it play like that and letting the actors do it.
0: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Shows like The Far Show became successful because they didn't play anything long. Yeah. And then some of their greatest stuff are like the, um, the Ted and... Uh, Ted
2: and Ralph, yeah.
0: ...where it's incredibly long.
2: Definitely. And I also think that works if you're designing the sketches to be quick cut like that, then then fine. Like, they're Ooh. written to be like that. that was, like, it was called The Far Show, obviously that was the intention. Yeah. But just sometimes on other things I felt like, why are we shooting 400 different angles of this sketch when I feel like it's going to be funniest on the two-shot, to be honest. But then, as I was saying earlier, that's why I'm not the best actor because I'm thinking, <laughs> why am I having another close-up? <laughs> you're not going to be on this.
0: Are you? So, no, absolute
2: I, pain in the arse yeah.
0: I, I make exactly that mistake but I've, I've never like you moved into being a director
2: oh I've only directed one tiny thing and you were very kindly in it I wouldn't call but, that quite being a director
0: that's it's good enough for me <laughs> oh, in about 1980 I think it's about 1984 in a flat in Edinburgh Victoria Wood came to our flat and oh, yeah. so she would only just have started yeah but I remember being in awe of her even then, being slightly nervous at meeting her.
2: I was nervous of meeting her. I met her twice and I was absolutely terrified. I mean, I was sort of speechless both times. I was a bit Mm. more confident the second time, but not in a way that I was very happy about. You know what I mean? Like a bit (laughs) sort of blurty. But the first time I was sort of mute. But yeah, I mean, at that point she was, uh, you sort of felt that was correct. But that's interesting you say that, that she inspired that feeling so early.
0: Yeah. I think you only had to see her once to know that what she was doing was completely unique. Yeah. And brilliant.
2: Yes. But also in her own demeanour, I think she, she had this sort of self-possession, didn't she, when she wasn't on stage? She was mm. quite quiet and, and um, dignified, I think, in that sort of quiet confidence that she's, I think she was very certain of her work and her talent, mm-hmm. even if she was not being respected Outside until later. You know what I mean? When you just meet people, you just know they know they're good. Yes. And not in a horrible, arrogant way. It was no. just like, yeah, this is all fun, this party stuff, but I've got work to do.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it,
2: it was a sort of, she felt just always about the work somehow. And that, there was that great Clive James quote about her kind of all these guys sort of poncing around doing kind of social satire and she just, the Oxfordy types, you know, Mm. who were all brilliant as well, but she just sort of came along and showed them how it was done, you know, what social satire really
0: is (laughs)
2: from a different perspective.
0: And often from a working class perspective and a Northern perspective. And a woman, you know, that was
2: very different at that time in the 80s. It was, and 90s, I think, dominated. But yeah, she was just unique and standalone and just massively prolific. I mean, Mm. I think... The work ethic was just incredible. She just generated so much stuff. But the other sketch of hers that I think had a big influence on me that uh, I later on had a character called Cheryl who wanted to be in Team GB at the Olympics, Hmm. who was a slightly over-enthusiastic teenage girl who was just trying her hand at different sports and was obviously slightly neglected by her parents who had no idea that this was going on. And I was writing these sketches, these Cheryl sketches, and it was all quite cute and funny. And I just thought, this feels very familiar. And I just where have I? Oh, I don't know. This is if i ripping something off. I'm not sure. And then I realised it's the swim the channel character, that amazing character she did of the teenage girl who was just going to swim the channel, and and <laughs> and her parents just didn't give a shit. Yeah. And she and she sort of would warm up on the beach, and she was doing her training, and she had a swimming costume on and her swimming hat on. But anyway, luckily my Cheryl sketches were deemed different enough but inspired by but you can see how it's gone deep and obviously everything i did early on was parodying so Mm. obviously the whole sort of acorn antiques thing went in deep
0: god victoria wood and acorn antiques just glorious and those final films where they actually looked at it as a retrospective yes and all the characters came out of character and played themselves as actors
2: julie walters is essentially joan collins Ah. Yeah. Doing that retrospective, just the joke within the joke. And you can participate in it as a viewer because it's been around for so long and it's just the best sort of combination of things, I think.
0: Wonderful. Okay, well, we would definitely put Acorn Antiques into the time capsule with great joy. Thank you. Okay, that's two items. So, what's number three, Katie?
2: Number three is the book Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth, and probably Philip Roth generally. Although I don't think he'd very like much like being confined to a time capsule, (laughs) even though he's no longer with us. Um, It's a book that came out in the late sixties. It wasn't Philip Roth's first book, but it is probably his dirtiest book overall, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in quite sort of a competitive field of his work, I think. Um, right. Have you read it? Do you know of it at all? Do you
0: know, I have never read any Philip Roth.
2: Oh, okay. Well, so
0: you can educate me.
2: Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I, um,
0: I can maybe <laughs> point at some things.
2: <laughs> the um, it, So... He has a bit of a controversial reputation, and so everyone sort of knows that, I think, and he's he's often been the charge of various things, misogyny and, you know, all sorts of things levelled at him. And I sort of started reading Philip Roth before I really understood that, Mm. or the, the cultural criticisms of him. I just really enjoyed these books, and they just sort of blew me backwards a bit, to be honest. I didn't quite realise you could write like this, I think, was my earliest impression of it. And Portnoy's complaint itself... Is a short book about a young Jewish man and his slightly sort of difficult and overbearing Jewish family who is completely consumed with sexual thoughts all the time and is a chronic masturbator <laughs> um, and there 's a famous scene that most people know of of when they think of portnoy 's complaint of of the protagonist relieving himself into some liver. Uh, that he's bought for tea on the bus and then bringing the liver home and his mother cooking it and the family <laughs> having it for tea. So that is a, a sort of, I know we discussed lowering the tone earlier, but that that's... Yeah, well, I'm embarrassed when about you- my joke now. Say, yeah, when you say... When you you said, might know
0: what was coming. I, <laughs> so to speak. I'm sorry yeah. to use that word. Sorry. Yes,
2: <laughs> I don't mean to lead us down a path we don't necessarily want to go down. No. But it is, that is what the book is about. It's extremely funny. It's quite short. It's a sort of short, furious beat-off of the book. I'm sorry to put it any other way. But it's incredibly funny. Well, to me it was anyway. And I just sort of couldn't believe what I was reading. I sort of got into Philip Roth in my early 20s. And I immediately loved it. I just should say, not all of his books are like that. I mean, a lot of them do deal with sex and lustful urges and transgressions and carnality and depravity and all sorts of things like that, but not all of them do. And there are very beautiful kind of books about, you know, like The Plot Against America or American Pastoral or all of these sorts of books that deal with big themes. You know, he hasn't got the reputation he's got just from writing a book about wanking. But... Um, <laughs> What I think I found was I read it and I just, like I say, I just thought I didn't know you could write like this. Like, I didn't know this was allowed. Not that I particularly wanted to write about those themes, although I think sex is a really interesting theme to write about generally. I've just written a film all about that. But yeah, it was just the style, this kind of spare, just sort of stabbing style, of but funny and pushy and sort of difficult, but not flowery or no, no kind of feelings, the unapologetic, self-lacerating kind of just sort of pump of (laughs) words just but brilliantly constructed as well and and so yeah I just there's a few people like that there's a few things moments like that where I have sort of punched out of what was a sort of nice middle class home counties sort of life Hmm. and just sort of something chimed with something else I think in me or or some sort of attitude or energy or something like that where I just thought oh okay you can do this
0: particularly in a world that seems to be going slightly the other way at the moment where people say you can't talk about that you can't say that well
2: funnily enough there's a huge biography of Philip Roth that's about to come out in early April and um I saw a headline the other day, and it won't be terribly flattering, all of it, because you can't be about Philip Roth, because he was an absolute arsehole sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, it was interesting, I saw in the paper the other day, some headline saying, is Philip Roth going to be cancelled as a result of this book? And I just thought, well, the man's been cancelled so many times. (laughs) I mean, and he's dead, I think, as Victoria Corrin pointed out, he was sort of cancelled, you know, unilaterally in 2018. Yes. But as we have learned, you can still cancel people after they've died, especially if they have a statue. And so I think there's this sort of looking back at his transgressions, but it's sort of poetic almost, because he never stopped cancelling himself. All his books were about ripping himself apart. And he had this alter ego called Nathan Zuckerman, which was in a range of other books, the Zuckerman books that he wrote, where he took, he used another alter ego to discuss his success with Portnoy's Complaint, which was a huge commercial success and basically saw him comprehensively cancelled, certainly by his own community and many other people who were just disgusted. (laughs) But it launched him and he became a celebrity. So then he wrote further books, examining that using an alter ego. And then Nathan Zuckerman, he could, so he could sort of look at himself from outside, dismantle himself. Some others of his books are just almost verbatim dialogue of him discussing how he uses people in his life. He was married to Claire Bloom for quite a long time and she has a lot to say about him and how his marriage wasn't very healthy and that he used her for that, for his work. And she's absolutely right about all of it, I have no doubt. But she still acknowledges he was a genius. Mm. So it's sort of, what do you do?
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's important to know these things about people. It's important to know the context in which something is written and the Mm. sort of person that wrote it, what they believed or what they did, that you may even object to incredibly strongly. But it doesn't make the work something that you should then, I think be something that you should then say, well, then we mustn't listen to it.
2: Yeah, but I think you can also judge the person and and still see that the work is good. I don't think you even necessarily have to say, well, in a historical context, that would have been okay. So that may apply to some things, but you could also say, no, in any context, that that was wrong. But Mm -hmm. still, they have created a work that, and I think think that's what's so difficult and and sort of troublesome and frightening and unpleasant about people who create genuinely great works of art who are awful people Mm -hmm. and treat other people very badly because it's confusing for your soul. Because on the one hand, you think, how can somebody not have something deep and good and profound inside them? They must have because they've produced this and this speaks to something human in me. So how can they have all that inside them and still treat these people like shit? Yeah. Like, why can't they bring these two things together? This is very confusing for me because on the one hand, you're like Michael Jackson, you know, you're making music for the ages. There must be something divine in you. And yet, I mean, you know, the we don't fully know what the... But he was certainly a very disturbed man. Mm. And I speak as someone who was a really big fan of his as a teenager and would have... If Twitter was around then, I would have been defending him, you know, like a little (laughs) swat. So, like, you know, I... uh... I just think it's a really tricky one and Philip Roth sort of falls into that category of the awful genius. But the thing about Philip Roth was I think he sort of knew he was an awful genius and all of his work was really an examination of how awful he could be. (laughs) And I just think that's an interesting thing to do, to, to use your art, to use your talent as a writer that, that he had to really go deep. Let's really get in this. Let's really unpack how awful, awful, awful I am. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then let's see if I'm any more awful than that. And then to sort of deliver it so brilliantly. And I actually found that quite reassuring. I just I just remember I don't particularly identify or not identify with the characters that are male or female or think, well, this character's treating this woman very badly in this story. I mean, it, I tended to identify with the protagonist, whether the protagonist was male or female, because the protagonist in his books tends to be looking at something deep inside themselves and seeing what's there. So I, I... It's a tough one, but I'll look forward to this biography coming out and we'll see what happens. But I do think as just a blast of writing fury and just fuck it all sort of book writing, I just think Portnoy's Complaint is quite a good example, love it or hate it, of what happens when a writer just goes, I'm just going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to unleash this and see what happens.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Well, OK, come on then. Tell me about your film.
2: Well, it's being shot right now as we speak, but I can't uh, visit the set because of they have to bubble very tightly. So I get uh, information every day about how it's going and I'm in touch with them, but I, you know, you don't necessarily need the writer lurking around at the back, sort of thinking... <laughs>
0: that's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, so. well, with you
0: standing there saying, why are they doing so many shots of this? Why can't they just keep it simple?
2: Just one big wide <laughs> shot, that's all we need. Let's but, put it on a stage. Uh, it's a play, yeah. It's a (laughs) (laughs) that's what they say if you want acknowledgement as a writer write a play if you want to make a living write a film no I have gladly given it to them I think if you trust everyone involved it's quite relaxing because you can just say here you are now make it sort of thing and then it becomes bigger than the script
0: what's it called Katie?
2: It's called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. And it is a two-hander about a woman in her 50s who is widowed and hires a young male sex worker for the night in a hotel because she feels she's never, ever had good sex. And now her husband is gone. She wants to experience that just once. So she hires this young man called Leo Grand and they meet three times, uh, four times, in fact, and their relationship kind of progresses uh, along profession you know in that context mm. um, but they um do all the things that they were hoping to do <laughs> <shall we> say? <laughs> Good. and also it's about sort of discovering things about yourself and learning to release yourself and you know not making assumptions about things and all that kind of thing but it's a comedy basically it's a it's a comedy about a woman in her 50s who hires a young male sex worker for the night for a night of bliss and um, Emma Thompson is playing the woman.
0: Oh, it'd be shit then.
2: Yeah, <laughs> really disappointed. Never mind. And um, Sophie Hyde is directing it, who directed Animals, and Daryl McCormack is playing the young uh, Leo. And so they're they're stuck in it right now, and they're doing it right now. So
0: Fantastic. I hope it works. I can't wait. I'm very excited.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, it was quite amazing because I did... Um, I wrote it just for myself, really, just over a year ago. Um, and I thought I might enter it into a playwriting competition or something because I, I wasn't really getting much away. And I thought, oh, I've just had this idea. I'm just going to write it and let's just see if anything happens.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I thought I'll enter it into a play competition, maybe. or I didn't quite know what to do with it. And then I sort of forgot about it because I had other work to do and I got a part in a show and all this stuff. And then last summer, my agent put me in touch with a producer who was looking for COVID-safe projects. And I thought, well, I've got this sort of two-hander. It's in one hotel room. I always write things that are cheap anyway, because I think you're
0: more likely to get get it going. (laughs) We open on a beach in Tahiti. Yeah, exactly. And the hordes of soldiers.
2: Six elephants.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, so this producer just took it on and it's just kind of gone from there so yeah i hope i hope it's great <laughs> it's a great team
0: and how fantastic to have emma doing it
2: she's just a good sort i think you know mm. and she's just been really cool about all this and i'm thrilled i, I honestly i i sort of am a bit tongue-tied about it because i still can't believe it and like with all things i just still think it's just you sort of constantly think it's just going to fall apart all the time don't you <laughs> until you're actually sitting watching it yeah. on the screen i
0: can't wait to see it and let's see if the inspiration of philip roth has worked on you.
2: Yeah, 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 I'll go with that. (laughs) Okay,
0: okay. (laughs) And in the meantime, he goes into the time capsule. Okay, we're gonna lock him away, the dirty old misogynist.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) don't let him out again, for God's sake.
0: Okay, let's move on to item number four. Right, it's time for the obligatory break in the middle of the podcast, in case anyone wants to play an advert or two. Let's see if they do.
1: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Welcome back. Okay, let's hear the fourth item that Katie Brand would like to put into her time capsule.
2: Item number four for me is the genre of music known as hip hop, which is something I love and have loved for a long time. And I still turn to it for any kind of boost. It tends to be my walk on music if I do some live shows. It's what I listen to to get ready for a show. If I'm feeling a bit down, it's what I like to dance to. And I just, um, I've always liked the whole attitude of it as well. And I i think I've really loved it since I sort of started getting into music, really. It wasn't very fashionable for a suburban home counties white girl
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: in the 90s to be into hip hop. Um i wasn 't trying to prove a point or appropriate anyone 's culture or insert myself into a world that didn 't you know did, i didn 't need to be in or anything like that i I just liked it I just really liked it. I loved the beat of it and just the Just the whole attitude and swagger of it. I love the women that were involved with the hip hop scene as well. I really enjoyed the way they carried themselves and spoke and all of this sort of stuff. So, yeah, when I was growing up and particularly the school I went to and the area I grew up, it was very normal to love Nirvana and Rage Against the Machine and REM and all of those sorts of bands of the, the sort of indie scene of the
0: 90s. Or be a goth.
2: Yeah, or be a bit gothy, or all mm-hmm. of that kind of thing. Um, but particularly the kind of, you know, dirty plimsolls and and T-shirts and sadness uh, <laughs> sort <source> of <laughs> music vibe that that really did dominate the charts at that time.
0: Yeah, hip-hop in itself just sounds more jolly, doesn't it? It's hip-hop.
2: Yes, it's hip hop. Yeah. Um, It wasn't like I was into initially kind of really full on pounding stuff. And I, you know, I know that there were loads of music journalists at the time that were covering all of the, you know, the Beastie Boys and all that. It wasn't like I had stumbled upon something unknown, but just, you know, in a comprehensive school near Watford in the 90s, it wasn't the mainstream (laughs) (laughs) taste. It was a bit weird. And I think my friends thought I was pretending or being a bit affected or putting it on. But I, I just really. Really loved it, and I, it was around the time when actually hip hop artists started breaking through quite a lot, and you know things like slightly softer end the more r and b end like everyone knows the fujis killing me softly and salt and pepper people like you know these were people that had chart hits but you know they were maybe one in the top 10 sort of thing or two or three but something in me just really responded and I used to go to clubs I had a couple of friends who lived in London who were much cooler than me and we would go to hip-hop clubs dancing together in my late teens and I just had the best time dancing at these clubs and still it's just the best night of dancing I think and so yeah it's my go-to music for just feeling like I need to just sort of pep myself up and get on with something
0: yeah am I getting too technical Of ask what defines a hip-hop music
2: well what people tend to think defines hip-hop is the beat so I believe and again people might correct me on this but a, a hip-hop drum beat is your kind of basic or even just dum, ch- dum. I mean it's quite a basic but that kind of dum, dum, ch- and then people will rap over it on the breaks, but they'll they'll cross over. But but people play around with that beat. But generally speaking, what defines a hip hop track as opposed to an R and B track or swing or something like that is that very steady hip hop beat. Mm. So that's the kind of I think the most essential. Thing, But then on top of that, it's all kinds of things, you know, it's that it's sampling and it's using yeah, bits from other tracks and, and mixing them up and playing them over and over again and then wrapping over the phrasing rather than on the beats, on the off beats. So like people like Jay-Z, people talk about his phrasing or Notorious B.I.G., like that, that the way that they would do internal rhymes and phrase over bar lines and all of that sort of stuff, so that you're going, you're in the gaps of the beats, mm. Um And when you get that right, just that beat and a good rapper and the bass, it just, I don't know, it just sort of energises me in this way. And and again, I think as well, when I was younger, I just, you know, I was quite sort of pushy and driven and a bit of a handful. (laughs) There weren't very many women around that time in terms of who was being idolised and who was being held up and stuff that that seemed to have this sort of real sass and just way of talking and unapologeticness about them. It was all kind of turned in pigeon toes and looking sad, Do You know, <laughs> yeah. to me anyway, where I lived, um, was the sort of dominant vibe. Whereas this was just like, we just come out swinging, like, you know, we're here and we're going to say some stuff. And I still find it really exciting. There's a very good documentary about Biggie Smalls that's out on Netflix at the moment that ta- you know shows a little bit of the women that were involved with his rap outfit, people like Little Kim and all of that. And just that sound they bring to it, I think is, is really good. And I know that there's always talk about the way hip hop talks about women. And I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that isn't a part of it, but when you get those really powerful female rappers as well, of which at the moment they're really dominant in terms of Nicki Minaj and all, you know, all Mm -hmm. of those, Cardi B, they're, they're just all over it at the moment. And Just that attitude and energy, I I just love it. I still love it. I still find it really just energising.
0: Yeah, I'm always amazed that thinking of the length and the history of popular music, as it were, from sort of, you know, the late 1950s, After all that time, somebody comes up with something new. Yeah, It amazes me. How the hell did they not notice that before?
2: Yeah, I know. Well, it came in with samplers and the new technology of, the, you know, being able to sample a track and lay it over another track and then distort it. Obviously, people were sort of DJing like that with turntables, but being able to then put it through a sampler. But also laying up a track. You know, Prince wasn't necessarily hip-hop. he was just sort of everything. But, you know, that skill of laying... A genius like Prince has the finished article in his head, perhaps to some extent, but we're just gonna lay it up tiny bit by tiny bit by tiny bit, a thing here, a thing here, and just and then you just make this thing that's like a sort of just hooky as anything.
0: Still in my head. I still find it difficult to accept. My musical brain was trained at a time when everybody went for mid late. And I still go, <laughs> Where's the mid late? Where is it? Yeah. The same beats kept going right the way through. It's not changed. Mm -hmm. That's my musical brain, and it's still... Rebels somewhat against the constancy of hip hop.
2: Well, they have the breaks. So, dancing in the break is break dance. So, so, you have the break on the beat, and then it might be a hold, and you might just have something sort of like a snare for a bit or just a bass line, and then the beat comes back in again. And you get a lot of sort of baseline sort of noodling as well. So, mm. but yeah, I think the pounding relentlessness of the beat is actually something I quite like about yeah, it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've grown to like it. Have I've, you? Yeah, well, my son's in his late 30s. He writes music on Computers most of the time. And one of the ways you do that is exactly what you say, the layering. Mm. You start with a beat that you like, and then you put something on it and you take bits away yeah. and you put bits back and you leave breaks. So of course, I've grown to love it.
2: In hip hop, they talk about the hooks as well. So like, it's not just the beat. A producer might talk about having a beat that they like, but they will also discuss having a hook that they like, like they just have it and they'll sort of sing it or it might be a sample. It's just a funny little hooky thing. And then that, you know, so it's just interesting to me. I come, many of my family are musicians and so music was a big part of my life growing up. And it was just an interesting, like you, I think you just go, oh, this is an interesting way to approach building a piece of music. Mm. Like, you know, and also the idea that there wasn't a composer necessarily, that it, it became an ensemble thing that people would go into the studio and sort of, start to play with things from a tiny kernel of just something to start with the hook is quite interesting because that's the thing that makes everyone want to hear it again and again and again. And then to create and have a guy come in and do a few lines because you like his style and then you have a thing, and, you know, and you might spend days in there together building something And um, rather than someone come in and say, I've written this, learn this. I know that isn't exactly how, but, you know, it's it, it sort of, for me, from a more formal music background to some extent, I just thought this is quite interesting. It sort of feels like comedy in, in a way, you know, the way you get a group of people that just sort of speak the same comedy language and just build something together. Or an element I mean,
0: of improv as well, I suppose
2: yeah yeah exactly and and a lot of the big rap stars that is what they do they 're improving mm-hmm. you know and and they seem to just speak it from nowhere. I mean people talk about someone like jay Z just coming in and just doing it i 'm sure he 's been working it out in his head, but it is improv, and they they do these rap battles, the MCs dueling in the street mm-hmm. about uh, you know who's who's the fastest, who's the smartest, who can do all this, and just I just like all that. There's the kind of framework for confrontation that's artistic and pushes you on and is competitive. You know, I I quite like all the feuding, and not when it ends in multiple deaths, but <laughs> you know just just when there's that sort of pushing each other on and goading each other a bit and trying to find the best how but how good can you be like Mm. if I'm this good how good can you be now can you do better than me okay you've done better than me can I do better than that I think it's quite a fertile way for people to develop
0: I'm sure that a lot of people who probably more people of my generation would not take interest in it in the same way that my parents didn't take interest in the things that I was listening to because they said well I can't understand the words yeah and I'd watched young people listening to that sort of music and they know exactly what everybody's saying. Whereas I go, I can't keep up. I can't keep up with what you're doing. <laughs> I have no idea what you're yeah. saying. I enjoy the rhythm.
2: Well, no, I get that. I get that too now. I mean, I don't always know either. I'm on there, Google <laughs> Urban Dictionary. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of slang and a lot of kind of jokes and in-jokes that I don't get and things. But sometimes I just like listen. Just, just if you like the, the sort of internal rhyming and the rhythm of, of a good rhyme, you know, just some of them just scratch that itch in your head and you just go, oh, that's nice. Mm. You know, to rhyme the middle of that word with that word and then to f- come off the end of that word and go into the, oh, it's just, you just go, oh, that's nice.
0: <laughs> particularly if it's coming out of you as you're doing it. That's amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah. But I love it when it's coupled with that attitude as well, just that way of sort of saying, mm. you know, we're here and we're going to say our piece sort of thing. I like that too. Mm. And and the playfulness of it as well. But but I do just particularly remember just some of the women, just, just I just thought, oh, God, these, these women are cool. Yeah. They- like, <laughs> They're not sort of shrinking in a corner. So no. Refusing to eat crisps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank God for Lauren Hill, that's all I can say. I know. <laughs> yeah. If you're ever gonna visit this time capsule. Which I think, looking at it now, it's large enough to visit.
2: Yes, <laughs> you're, you're going
0: to have to go in there and deal with Philip Roth. Yeah. So it's a good idea to be backed up by, some by good... salt and
2: pepper. Yeah. yeah come yeah. on,
0: girls. Here we go.
2: <laughs> I want Cardi B, Nicki Minaj, and Maggie The Stallion <laughs> behind me. I think, confronted with that, I have a strong suspicion of what Philip Roth might be doing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: brilliant okay Katie so we're moving on to your last item
2: yes so my last item is the thing I'm going to bury Mm -hmm. I want to just warn people that this is no disrespect intended this is a wholly personal thing Um, and I am going to bury my youth bible and I want to clarify that I'm not burying the bible but more my youth bible I don't know if you use images from this but I still have it here
0: oh I can do yeah
2: The cover design is by me, Mm -hmm. where I cut out lots of stickers and words and stuck it all on with sellotape when I was about 15. Things like um, inner peace and help, interestingly. Mm. Hear me roar, heaven, love, a life devoted to God. All of these things that I stuck on here to... uh, Basically, I think try and catch the attention of my church worship band leader who I was completely in love with, who I actually stuck you can find love on the spine from a newspaper. Um, But I was a teenage Christian and I became a Christian broadly by myself. I don't hold my family responsible Uh, when I was about 13. And became very, very into being an evangelical, fundamentalist, full on happy clappy Christian. So I was really at the kind of full on end. And I ended up going to church four or five times a week and it became my whole life. And I was in the band and I was in the tea and coffee team and I was on the prayer team and I went to the summer camps. And it was a very all encompassing experience for me. And it went on until I did a theology degree, a year into which I just completely <laughs> stopped being a Christian and stopped going, as they warned me, I would. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, well, what can
0: you do? So what is that? They basically said to you, if you look at this too closely, you're rejected.
2: Yes, essentially, yes. They said I should not do uh, a theology degree at a secular university, which is how they refer to it. It's what you and I would just sort of think of as a normal university. They said, if you want to study the Bible, you ought to go to Bible college because, and otherwise ditch it. Because to be honest, there's a lot of souls out there that need saving and you shouldn't be spending your energy on this. You need to be out there. You know, doing practical Jesus, the work of the Lord, not this sort of thing, Mm. undermining everything. So that was the sort of attitude, but that isn't the attitude of every Christian. And in fact, lots of my tutors and professors were Christians. They were just sort of a bit different. It's just the very particular type of church that I went to, and I think I liked it initially because that all made it quite exciting. Mm. You know, it was all very passionate. And in the nineties, there was an odd time in the UK and and in America and Canada a little bit and in other places in the world where the evangelical movement suddenly become really strong Mm. and really full on. And I think there was a general sense that the end times were coming. That was certainly the vibe in my church, hence the urgency. But anyway, when you had a good youth group, my church and a good youth worker, I would say that in amongst all the general (laughs) balminess, and um, they would give us all these youth Bibles that were produced that I think churches could just get and and would hand out to young people that join the church. So I got one of these Um, and I stuck stickers all over it and I sort of half-heartedly highlighted bits of it. Um, The language is really awful the translation Mm. i mean it is aimed at sort of young people
0: did they not think that you could read the bible
2: yeah i think they wanted to do a sort of down with the kids Uh, kind of translation and and a kind of cool you know bit of a vibe about it so
0: hey on the fifth day god woke up and he thought hey come on let's make some trees
2: yeah Hey, dudes. Yeah, it's kind of a bit like that. But what there is about this youth Bible, and and partly I want to bury it, not because I want to bury the Bible itself or even Christianity necessarily, just more me at that age Mm -hmm. being a terrible, (laughs) full-on fundamentalist Christian who would take full school assemblies, by the way. I would put my name down to do it. No other students did this. And I would preach at my school, 1200, like just a comprehensive school with everyone just sat there like, what is she talking about? And then I'd sing a song at the end. Um. So like this, yes, this is the type of human I was. And so I think this sort of, this youth Bible, I think with all my little underlinings and sort of markings and bookmarks and highlighting just sort of slightly represents, I think this sort of rabbit hole I went down at that age and really took quite far, I think. And I I think I did my, well, I did my live show about it and I did a tour and I did Edinburgh. Mm. I did a little run in London and I just thought, okay, I've sort of dealt with that part of myself I think now I hope you know I think confronting your teenage self is quite an interesting thing to do sometimes and I was like I say a bit of a handful and quite ambitious and driven and I, things I wanted to do and you know I wanted to get on with it and I wanted everything now and all of this sort of thing so <laughs> there was an element of all of that and preaching in the Watford Shopping Centre on a Saturday morning <laughs> like
0: this. You were very certain then as well you were very certain.
2: Yes I was appallingly certain I was to say if I, Twitter was around then I mean I just would have been appalling that I just you know just I shudder but I I also think like a bit like where we started with the dirty dancing thing of watching it on my 40th birthday and having a reckoning with my former self you know and just saying like okay I've made this progress this part of my personality has helped me that part hasn't I need to deal with that. I need to see if there's any remnants of that still around and confront it properly and look at it and all of this. So I think maybe it's time to lose the youth Bible and to say, I've, I've hoped that I've dealt with whatever was going on then <laughs> sufficiently now. But one of the things that makes me laugh about this youth Bible is that um, I'm not going to read out any actual scripture to laugh at because that's, I'm not sure about that. This so it's a good idea. But what they do have in this particular youth Bible is these. every page has a funny little story that someone else has written.
0: Somebody other than God?
2: Someone other than God, yes. Okay, yeah. With his massive pencil. Mm -hmm. Some sort of clergy or I don't know who has written a little story on each page that's meant to be relevant and helpful to an average teenager in finding the right path through the vagaries of the world to remain pure and with God. And they're meant to be realistic and insightful and relatable. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to share one with you. This is the kind of thing that I was reading. And this is about decision making. And it's called, Who's Gonna Know? (laughs) Rob was having the time of his life on tour in Germany with his community orchestra. And no parents. There were adults, of course. But Rob was making his own decisions and loving every minute of it. On Saturday night, Rob's friends went out to get their first taste of Germany. Most band members were excited to take advantage of Germany's sex shows.
0: What?
2: <laughs> I, I went on school orchestra trip Like, okay.
0: Where are they? Hamburg?
2: Hamburg, yeah. <laughs> Rob wasn't so sure. He didn't feel quite right about going, but it seemed to be something everybody did when they were away from home. Is this? Once again, I question the real world experience of whoever wrote this. He thought, anyway, who's going to know? I know, Rob finally told himself after remembering the advice in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 to 20. So, see how this passage can help you make difficult decisions. I just thought, I don't know any 15 year old boys on a community orchestra tour, whatever the hell that is.
0: Well, first of all, I don't know any who could get into a section. <laughs>
2: The idea that they would call on at Ephesians chapter five in that <laughs> environment. That was your real world advice. That was that. And there's and on every page, there's one like that. Just getting weirder and weirder. There's one about a matador that died at the hands of the bull, but he deserved it because he was boasting. <laughs> like, it's just, oh these dear. things just get weirder and weirder. And, and it just sort of, I don't know, it slightly represents to me this sort of weird bubble that I got myself into, I think, at that time. And I'm just quite glad that I kind of climbed out of it I think via a theology degree which seems a bit ironic but um but yeah it, it was it was a weird time.
0: There are a lot of adults who think that they could basically tell teenagers or young people the answers to everything you know and, and I'll tell you exactly <laughs> what to think in this moment whereas in fact yeah the world would be a much better place if we were listening to teenagers yeah who I think probably are far more inspired and far more open to ideas than you become when you're over 50 yeah you're the last person who should be lecturing them i think
2: yes and i do just think you know you can't halt progress like i i know everyone knows that and it's not exactly i'm not going to win any awards for coming you know, <laughs> coming up with that but i didn't know that it, it, is it true it is yes well it, I, I think it might be true yes and i want to break it to you gently I'm just gonna write
0: that down <laughs> hang on <laughs>
2: But I just think sometimes people like don't quite realise what that really means, that you don't internalise it properly until you are a bit older. Mm -hmm. And you look at people younger than you who feel things and see things quite differently to you. And you just think, well, I literally can't hold this. Even if I want to, I can't. So you're just going to have to get on board because you know, as you move up the generations, it's weird. You see that you're not in charge, you know, my stepdaughter's 21 and she's brilliant about things like this. And she's, you know, she's quite political and she's got lots of opinions and all this great stuff. And we had this joke about um, being vegan and stuff. And I was just sort of saying, you know, I do like to eat meat, but honestly, I just feel like I'm going to just get in as much as I can now, because at a certain <laughs> point, I'll just be allowed to eat what people your age tell me I can eat. So, you know, maybe you'd be gracious and allow me something every now and again, but like, yeah. I'm not under any illusions. And I didn't mean that nastily, or we laughed about it. I was just like, people your age are going to be making the laws mm-hmm. that govern the end of my life. So I just need to get on
0: board. Yeah, it's true. My mother-in-law, you know, I'll write you a check. A, a what?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My grandparents, um, my paternal grandparents were always really on top of new developments. I look back now and I just think they were really smart to take that attitude, actually, because, you know, I remember all being called to their house in the late 80s to see this new thing that they got, which was a fax machine. Um, And we sort of sat and watched and they prearranged that they were going to fax someone in Australia and they were going to fax back and we were going to watch this happen. um, I mean, they were one of the first people to have a fax machine, so they didn't really have anyone to fax. (laughs) but they were so on it like really excited like this goes up to a satellite and it comes back down down here and like you know they were on emails early on and all of this and it just sort of was like god that's weirdly more relaxing I think than trying to fight it all the time (laughs) you know because I just think I don't want google glasses but maybe I just won't be able to live an efficient life without them so what are you going to do you can't halt progress they're just going to do it anyway.
0: Sort of in reverse, you're going to be Alexander Graham Bell sitting there saying, when somebody else gets one of these, it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> I know. I
2: know. But I think my dad always said, you know, if, if email had been invented first, everyone would have got excited about the telephone. <laughs> yeah. Be like, God, what, I don't even have to write this thing? Why? I just pick it up and talk to them? That's astonishing. Think how much time that's going to save.
0: <laughs> I know, my granddaughter rang me the other day on the landline. Yeah. I answered it and she went, hello? and I went hello she went is that you granddad I said yes is that you Edie yes I'm calling you on the telephone (laughs) we talked about how interesting it was so we could talk to each other but not see each other yeah really interesting conversation but for her it was an amazing piece of technology
2: that's so interesting I mean technology's just gone at such an extraordinary pace over the past hundred years I'm not surprised humanity is slightly struggling to catch up Mm. and I guess maybe if Future generations will just calm down a bit and just start to pick and choose what they want. I mean, some people are already buying old Nokias that you can't get emails on. And there's always the discussion about how invasive email is and all of that sort of stuff, you know. So maybe there will be a way to temper it, but that in itself will be... The progress, I guess, but yeah, I mean, you sort of envy people if people can just live their life completely happily and and without any cares, without a smartphone, then do it. But there's no point pretending smartphones aren't around.
0: No, I know. <laughs>
2: no point being cross with everyone else for having one.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Katie! So yes, I will definitely take your youth Bible
2: my own personal copy
0: yes indeed not the bible not religion just your personal copy the one thing that obviously was fantastically important to you as a teenager
2: yes
0: I've seen it and the amount of work you put into that thing
2: oh yes Yes, it was. I used a lot of sellotape. <laughs> um, I'm not 100% sure why I kept it all this time. I, I did take it on tour with me. When I did, I was a teenage Christian, so it's it kind of came round again yeah. and served a secondary purpose. But now I think I might just sort of turn away from my teenage self now. I feel like I've sort of dug into her quite a lot over the past few years and just sort of crack on with What's to come? Yeah,
0: the woman in her fifties who's getting sex workers to come to her hotel room. Yes.
2: Yeah. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I've written my own future. Why not write a good one?
0: <laughs> oh, Katie, how lovely to talk to you. It's been really gorgeous. My
2: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and the, I'm sure you'll agree, lovely Katie Brand. If you'd like to hear more of this podcast, then you can subscribe to it on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider for all episodes instantly as they're released, completely free. If you get offered the opportunity to rate the show and maybe even write a short review of it, we'd be delighted if you'd say something really lovely about us. Now, to find out what we're up to and what's coming up, you can follow either me or My Time Capsule on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. And if you're enjoying the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music, then it's available to listen to in full on Spotify without me talking all over it. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Thanks for supporting us. Please do tell your friends. I mean, you know, look, I'm not demanding you do. There's no pressure. I'm, I'm not twisting your arm or anything. <laughs> Although obviously that that spyware that goes with this podcast means that I have some very interesting footage of most of you which I'll I'll, I'll probably never make public. Probably. Oh, and yeah, for your information, Philip, turning the lights off doesn't help. It's infrared. Bye. I'm still here. No, I'm lying, actually I can't see a bloody thing. Or can I?